and welcome back to Series 2 of the Shipping Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Graham Fisher. In today's episode, we're going to be exploring how to get your first job and how to plan a successful career in the maritime industry. This episode is sponsored by Stellamar, Global Employment Solutions, and kindly supported by the Honourable Company of Master Mariners. Stellamar are one of the leading maritime energy and finance recruitment specialists, and we together understand that finding your first job as a newly qualified officer can be extremely difficult. That's why in this episode, we'll discuss ways to stand out in the industry, how to write the perfect CV, and which areas of the industry are experiencing a growth in demand. I'm joined by Alistair McMillan, Managing Director of Selamar. Welcome on the show. Thanks for having me, Graham. Really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to uh, having a good discussion around maritime recruitment today. So before we begin, could you just give a bit out outline as to uh, who Selamar are and, and what they do? Stellamar is a maritime employment solutions organisation. We also do some work in the finance sector as well, but we're predominantly a, um, a maritime employment solutions business. And, and what we mean by that is that we specialise within recruitment and HR for the maritime industry as a whole, but more specifically with uh, ship owners and ship managers globally. The main areas that we that we specialise in are the cruise and tanker markets, as well as the uh, super yacht and rope pack sectors. So as far as those key areas are concerned, uh, we work with a select client base and we try to only work with about 20 to 30% of the market because um, we want to work with um, the employers of choice within each space uh, so that we're presenting options that are viable and interesting um, to either seafarers or, or shore-based professionals. From your experience, are the particular sectors of the industry which are hot spaces, shall we say, for recruitment at the moment and or areas which are not as what they used to be? Uh, across the industry, there's a, uh, there's a huge shortfall of, um, of skill um, and skilled talent. And the areas that we tend to focus on are uh, probably what's most interesting to the people that are listening to this podcast, um, which is the, the areas of growth for Northwest European seafarers. The, the demand for Northwest European seafarers is based on, um, the, or based on several factors. Number one, the quality of the education in the COC. And number two, based on the demand of where, those, um, where the, the companies that are hiring have, have their office locations. And also, it's the complexity of the operation um, and what that means for the, the ship owner's clients. With that in mind, our areas that we're focusing on is then that we see as the highest growth markets um, for Northwest European seafarers. There's three core markets. Um, the first is the gas tanker market, um, both from a seagoing and a shore-based perspective. That's good to know. That's where I work. It so, is, yeah. And, and, and actually, um, having done a bit of research into your background, Graham, I think that you are quite well placed for... blush. Yeah. So the LNG, LNG market in particular, um, just to give you some, some context on the growth there, Qatar Gas and the Qatari has um, made a pledge to build 60 LNG carriers um, over the course of the next six years. Incredible growth. It's it's absolutely incredible. So so just putting that into context um, for you know how many seafarers are going to be required, particularly quali- um, qualified marine officers to work on board. Um, it's going to that's going to create quite a stir in the market, um, given that other major players are, are still building. Um, so TK are still delivering vessels, and they've gone through quite a large expansion. Um, and, um, and and other players in the market are doing the same. So um, there's a huge demand on the LNG front. LPG is also very hot, but not necessarily for the for, for Northwest European officers. That's why we're focused on LNG. It's no secret that the cruise industry is going through its largest boom of all time. Interesting dynamic within the cruise industry as well. Innovative ways of, of fueling the vessel. So so um, which again is going to tie into that LNG market quite quite interestingly in the demand for for engineers with LNG or IGF code fuel experience. It's going to be quite interesting there. 
One area that's really interesting and, and very lucrative is the super yacht sector. It's not for everyone, but 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 certainly the the demand for particularly British uh, COCs um, in that segment is is increasing more and more based on the size of yachts that are being built. Right now, there are more yachts over 100 meters and under construction than there are in operation. So in my in my view, those three those three areas are the hottest areas for Northwest European seafarers. Um, I would also expect a surge in demand within the offshore ve- vessel segment as the industry picks up. You know, we're likely to see um, an increase in demand there and a different offering um, to its uh, to its employees with slightly less um, less time on board um, and uh, a bit of a better work life balance. So, if there's going to be so much growth, what does this mean for cadets? Are we does training need to change, or are we going to have a are all of our newly qualified officers going to be inundated with uh, job opportunities with the with this sort of expected level of growth across the industry? Obviously, the demand's increasing. So, um, if we use the areas that I've just described as examples, the demand for uh, seafaring talent is completely outstripping the supply. Um, there's just not enough people. Um, that being said, demands from employers as to what they would expect in bringing someone into the organisation are increasing. There's really a disconnect. Um, between what the market's actually doing and what the employers are expecting. Mm. So if anything, um, certainly as I see it right now, just as hard, if not slightly harder, because there's additional qualification requirements, uh, additional expectations put put to the ship owners by the charters. So it places a a burden on ship operators or ship owners to pay additional to have new joiners up up to the standard which they expect, you know, is costing them money. Yeah. Yeah. So is is a solution there to better train cadets so that they are leaving or qualify, qualifying from college with more certificates, more you know, short courses than we have now to be more appealing to the market? I think, I think the responsibility lies with, uh, with the industry as a whole. From the training perspective, there's an obvious gap. I'm sure you could agree um, that the amount of training that was required for you to feel comfortable in rank um, following uh, the completion of your cadetship was probably a, roughly between um, four to six months. Would you agree with that? Yeah. The the, the problem is if you're a ship owner um, and you have an immediate requirement for a third officer, um, you have the option of taking an experienced third officer from somewhere outside of the UK that's um, a cheaper labour um, and already has the experience and doesn't have the expectation that someone like yourself or I would have um, for what an employer should um, you know should owe me as a as an employee. It's quite a difficult decision for the employer to invest a further six months of training in a third course, mate to yeah. bring them into that role. Absolutely. And this is where that responsibility thing that I was talking about comes into it. Is there's a collective responsibility here. The ship owner needs to understand that he needs to invest in, in talent to bring through the ranks. The accrediting bodies need to understand that, that there is a, a gap somewhere between the qualification of, of, of a marine officer and actually them being able to fulfil their role. And, I, and then I also think that there's... Um, there needs to be a bit of an understanding as to as to the fact that there there is this huge shortage and skill shortage and shortfall and of skilled personnel to come and work in these roles, um, and that everyone needs to work together to make that possible. Yeah. So, Alistair, let's say I'm a newly qualified officer, and I'm looking for a job. What, in your experience, does a good CV look like? How can I make myself stand out? Um, so, I think as with anything, it's it's obvious who's tried hard and who hasn't. Aesthetically pleasing CVs um, are always easier to read than one that's just functional mm. um, so if you can have the if you can have the functional aspects in the cv but also put the time in to make it look a little bit different then i think that really helps and how long should a 
CVB. I don't think it, I don't think it needs to be well, particularly if you're a newly qualified officer. I think you, I think you'd struggle to make it any longer than two pages. Yeah. I personally believe that only relevant experience for the role should be on the CV. Um, I've got quite a strict view on how CV should be formatted. The way that I would do it myself would be name at the top. It may be interesting to to put your seagoing qualification on there. So further to that, um, your contact details. What about pictures? Um, I think uh, a photo is a personal preference. Within the yachting industry, it's completely essential. Other than that, I'm 50-50 on them. Mm. Um, and, but if you are going to have a picture, make sure it's professional. I think the CVs um, for seafarers are generally um, a little bit behind the times anyway. Just to kind of come back to the layout, so name, contact details, um, a personal profile or, or summary, um, just detailing um, what it is that makes you you and, and what are your key selling points. Beyond the, 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 the personal profile or, or summary, should be relevant experience, starting with your most recent role. Further to that, qualifications, four or five key qualifications. Um, I don't think you need to detail every SDCW qualification you've got unless it's particularly relevant for the for the job that you're applying for. That was one of my next questions. So, so you know that to have a COC, you need you know, XYZ short courses. So there's no need, in your opinion, to list all of those short courses which are compulsory for a COC. Yeah, so I don't think you need to, uh, you need to detail um, your basic safety training mm. um, or security awareness yeah. um, or the fact that you've got an ENG1. What about, <laughs> uh, what about in the, uh, just linking back to the objectives that you mentioned, you know, the, the, the sound bites, so oh, I work well in teams, oh, I, I'm, I can be left unsupervised for tasks, you know, I'm trustworthy, all of that sort of, I don't know whether that's jargon in the recruitment industry, is it? Or... Uh, yeah, it is, and, and, um, and we kind of have a bit of a laugh about it, actually. The, the, the one that you just mentioned, I, I can work well on my own or, or as part of a team. I, I actually interviewed someone recently uh, for a job at Stellamar, and um, that was one of his answers. And, it, and, and it, it, But he was a young guy, and it, and it made me chuckle because he obviously showed me that he'd done a bit of research into, you know, into how he should be interviewing. Um, but it's not genuine. Um, so I think um, I think the the most important thing overall is authenticity and, and being genuine. That comes from a place of from the heart. Yeah, it come, <laughs> yeah, it come, comes from the heart. It's, it's passionate. What about weaknesses towards you know three months in of having no job? I started putting in to like the brief that words to the extent of I understand I don't have the full criteria, but I would appreciate the opportunity. Like being honest about saying you know you you want the job if you're prepared to put the time in from the company, like is that good honesty? Um, I think that anything that you can do to humanize yourself um, and, t- and make yourself um, a person rather than just another, um, just another job application uh, will endear yourself to, um, to any recruiter. Um, I know I've not worked for the last three months, this is because I've been doing this. Um, I'm actively looking to, whilst I understand that um, I'm, I'm lacking in um, certain experience, I'll make up for it, and um, you know, in my desire to uh, to do a great job, mm. something like that. There's absolutely no problem in in highlighting your own weaknesses, uh, because ultimately they're, they're there anyway. Yeah, of um, course. And um, and it shows a little bit of humility um, and understanding that you you know whilst whilst you have qualified and you've got your ticket, there, you know, there's a long way to go. So on my CV, a large part of the second page is taken up by sort of the activities, the organisations which I'm involved with. These organisations, which have conferences, connect you with people, you get a greater awareness. Like, do you see a lot of value added? Would you say to any cadets or junior officers, you know, get involved with these organisations because it gives you, you know, the upper hand when it comes to jobs? Hundred percent. Yeah, I think um, you know, I was making some notes prior to this meeting, and uh, one of the most important factors when someone's 
preparing for um, a career at sea or a career within the maritime industry is networking, getting to know people because it's a very small industry. People are generally happy to help each other, particularly within um, within the UK. There's um, a bit of a, a mentality of um, people sending the elevator back down once they reach the top floor. Um, so once people have kind of reached the top in their career, they're more than happy to send it back down to help other people to come up. So any opportunity that you've got for networking um, and for meeting people and um, forging those relationships, it might not help you right now, but they will help you in the future. Before the show, we did a couple of polls on Twitter. We had one poll which, which asked, how many companies have you worked for since qualifying uh, within the last five years? And overwhelming number of people said one. But when we look at the, a recent article from The Telegraph from Nautilus International, a recent study that they did shows that up to 54% of maritime employees are actively seeking a new job. So are we seeing a shift in terms of millennials wanting job hopping for promotions? Are we seeing uh, the, the dying ages of company loyalty, people being invested in five, ten years with one company? I think that um, certainly the millennial, the millennial generation's view on company loyalty or employee loyalty um, is vastly different to what, um, to what our own or, or even our parents' views on that would have been. Um, generally speaking, the amount of time that anyone is going to stay with one single employer um, is much shorter than it used to be. I think that staying with a company for any longer than five years um, starts to make you a little bit institutionalised. Um, so, I, so I think it's quite healthy to change um, organisation every five years. Otherwise, you start to become difficult to employ um, because you, you only know that company's way of doing things. So one thing I see on LinkedIn quite regularly is temporary job offers and then, you know, in the subtext, it's the potential to become permanent. From your experience, is it more a case of people just trying to fill the gap or is the opportunity actually there for it to become a permanent role? So generally speaking, we don't um, actually recruit very heavily within the temporary uh, recruitment market. Generally, it's, it's just as hard to find someone on a temporary basis as it is on a permanent basis. Um, it makes more sense for us just to focus on finding permanent members of staff for our clients. If a recruiter is posting that there is the opportunity for it to go to go permanent, I think you have to question who's telling you that um, as to whether or not it's um, whether or not it's going to be true. The industry is based on trust, and unfortunately, um, a lot of people that work within the recruitment um, the recruitment space aren't necessarily or don't necessarily always have um, give the rest of us the best name. So I think it's important that if you're going to be making a decision based on something that a recruiter is telling you that it's really important that you um, that you know that you've got a trustworthy relationship with that person. So we spoke about the risk of becoming institutionalised with an individual company. What about sectors of the industry? You know, I'm LNG now. If I spend the next 10 years in LNG, with maybe with a variety of companies, um, is that will, will that hinder my perhaps opportunities ashore when I want to make that transition? Is it better to get experience on a on a wide variety of ships even though the pay differences are you know quite drastic between certain sectors um, I think this is why it's, it's so important that you plan your career but planning for what you're going to do if you're going to be going through a, a training company during your cadetship it's, it's so important that you gain as much experience on a wide variety of vessels as possible just so you can understand what you like and what you don't like the opportunity to become pigeonholed is is massive I think particularly if you're a deck officer you really need to think about long term what it is that you want to be doing but generally speaking, I think it's super important um, that you start planning for where you're going to be in 15, 20 years now, uh, because otherwise 
by the time you get there, you're not going to be able to do what you want to do. Is there a lot of benefit with people picking up the phone to speak to a recruiter, or is it more of a hindrance on you trying to get stuff done throughout the day? Yeah, I think there's um, I think there's two sides to it. I think um, for um, the job seeker, I think it is 100 percent beneficial to pick up the phone and speak to a recruiter. If you, if you were to ask 99 recruitment consultants what they, what they would prefer, they'd probably say they'd prefer someone just sent an email because everyone's so short of time. Um, but realistically, um, it's the, the same kind of stuff that I'm sure your, your mum and dad told you when you were first first applying for jobs when you were 16, is that, um, you know, kind of get in, fa- get, get in the faces of the recruiters, you know, you know um, make yourself known to them and make it difficult for them to forget your name when a job opportunity comes up. When a job comes through, um, the first thing we want to do is just rack our brains as to who we know. We don't want to have to resort to looking on databases. We don't want to have to resort to networking and asking for referrals. It is easier if there's someone that just kind of pops into our head. So, as for, so from a, from your perspective as a job seeker, um, it is really important that first that you present yourself in the right way, um, but also that you are putting yourself in front of them on a regular basis, but not so much that you become annoying. And also, when you do call, try not to sound dreary and down about the fact that you don't have a job keep upbeat present yourself well certainly don't call every day don't call every other day don't email every day but make yourself known another one of the surveys that we conducted asked the factors which people consider when looking for a prospective employer and over half said that salary and benefits was the the main driving force the other options on the list were company reputation working conditions promotion prospects so do you find that people are just driven by money when it comes to finding work, or do people value companies which are committed to their employees? I'll turn the question back on you, actually, if you don't mind, because I think it'd be interesting to get your view on it. What are the main benefits of a career at sea? The prospects for the future are definitely... And time off? Yeah, I think I think time off is... Uh... But I think, so, so the reason I'm asking you that is, mm. um, is because I think that it's obvious that a, a driving force behind um, starting a career at sea is that it's lucrative. Um, generally speaking, there's there's um, uh, tax benefits mm-hmm. uh, for most, or certainly for some, and um, and you get a lot of time off. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't surprise me that that is the case, but it is in it is in contrast to a lot of other surveys that I've seen conducted um, that that actually um, say that the working conditions on board. Um, the investment from the employer um, in, in training and development and the communication with the uh, crew management team are, are actually the main reasons why someone would stay in or leave a job um, rather than just the salary and rotation. So when we consider coming ashore, do you think it's imperative to have a Master Mariner licence or a Chief Engineer licence in order to be successful? Or can you have just as a successful career with your Officer of the Watch or your mate's licence? I'll answer the question in two ways. So, is it important to have a chief officer's, uh, sorry, a chief engineer or a master mariner's license when when coming ashore, or is it imperative to have it in order to get your first job ashore? Absolutely not. Um, I know plenty of seafarers that have come ashore with an officer of the watch ticket, or a second engineer, or, 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 a, or a chief officer's license, quite happily, quite easily, um, stepped into superintendency roles and further further to that, become you know marine managers, fleet managers. I think where the problem lies is not having a master mariner or a chief engineer certificate can pose um, a problem further down the line in taking that next step beyond ma- management into kind of senior management and senior leadership. However, that being said, um, I think the really most important thing to think about when you're planning for that type of role, um, if you know if you want to get to the really upper echelons of the of the shipping industry, um, it's 
having a stronger understanding of the commercial operations of the organisations rather than just the technical. But should cadets, junior officers be planning so far ahead because, you know, Things can change, your priorities can change, the, the path which you planned could be completely different. Yeah, and I, I, I get that completely. Um, but these are the, this is why someone needs to plan for their career well in advance. This is the nature of the beast. The time that you need to take out to sit your exams, you should have thought about that when you, when, you, know, when you started your career. Of course, you should have planned that. Because if you had, you'd have planned for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you'd planned for it, you'd have made allowances. And then you'd be able to, you know, you'd be able to navigate your career in a better way. Um, it's the, the people that stagnate are the people that haven't planned if I can give you an example um, there's, um, um, there's, there's someone I know quite well um, who um, worked in the cruise industry as a junior officer moved into the yachting industry and has remained um, at the second officer level for the, for the well, second first officer level um, on cruise and yachts for the last 10 years um, and he keeps chasing a time for time rotation um, which aren't really available in either industry um, unless you're unless you're reaching um, chief officer, safety officer level, which he can't get, with those roles he can't get because he doesn't have a chief mate's license. I've had the same conversation with him over the last six or seven years. Go and do your mate's ticket, go and do your mate's ticket, go and do your mate's ticket. And the conversations that we're having are exactly the same. But every time he calls me, so I say, okay, I want, I want a rotational job. It's like, well, have you done your mate's ticket yet? No, well, I can't help you. Um, and these are, and that's a perfect example of someone that hasn't planned and is in a continual rut because they're not, they're not making that um, necessary jump, um, which is a, which is a financial burden. But again, as I said, just to be blunt, it is the nature of the beast and it is an expectation in the industry. Unless you commit to a single employer, if you want to achieve you know the highest ticket possible um, in the shortest amount of time, the best way to do it is to give give loyalty to an employer. What is the difference in your eyes between someone coming to you and saying, I want a job ashore, I've sailed as second mate, or I've sailed as chief, I have my master's ticket, compared to someone saying, I have my master's ticket, I've had command of a vessel. Is it all right for me to come ashore with just a master's ticket rather than a master's Yeah, I, I, would, I would actually argue that um, it's, it's unlikely, or it's becoming less and less likely, um, that once people have got command experience, they will come ashore. Because the pay drop is so significant on a tax-free earning. Whereas if you're a chief officer, you would earn the same amount taxed by coming ashore, so the drop is actually less. So, so I would argue that most of the most of the people that we see coming ashore these days are actually people um, that are either um, second engineers or chief officers rather than masters and chief engineers. So in a nutshell, what would you say would be the key message of, of this episode for junior officers or those who are well into their career you know what advice would you give for going higher and higher up the ladder in, in the maritime industry i think there's a few things to think about ultimately it's um it's important to take a long-term view in your career um it's a very small industry and and the impacts of your mistakes are lasting um so you know i think that's a really important message to get across i, I also think it's important to to remember that um as we were just talking about a moment ago you can't solve a long-term problem with a short-term solution um, so you really need to think long term um, about where you want to be um, and start planning for it accordingly. Um, and employers will recognise um, career-minded and savvy individuals and will want to will want to invest and hire those people and progress them. Um, so I think it's it's important to to remember that you've studied hard to achieve your COC. So if it was me, I would I would advise to put the same effort into planning for your career, 
know that you've got know that you've got your ticket. Fantastic. I think that's a really interesting conversation. And thank you so much for coming on the show and for discussing the industry, recruitment and also Stellama. Thanks for your time, Graham. I really enjoyed that. Thank you for listening to the show and we hope you've enjoyed it. It would be great if you could leave a comment below. And a special thanks to our sponsors, Selamar Global Employment Solutions, and of course, the Honourable Company of Master Mariners for their support. Don't forget, you can find us on social media. It would be great to follow us and get in touch if you have any ideas, comments or questions. Until next time, see you then.